0: Hey there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because you put your right foot in, you take your right foot out, you put your right foot in, and you shake it all about. But regardless of how you know me, you know I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast! Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Oh hell yeah, my thickies! Welcome to the show, everyone, recording this week at the Environmental Thickness Agency. Quick reminder to make sure you follow us on Twitch to watch us play games like Marvel's Avengers or Spider-Man Miles Morales, and soon, some other superhero video games. The link to the Twitch channel is in our show notes. Lots of Twisted Cape podcasts are dropping over the next few days, so subscribe if you have not already. Now, onto to the city shout-outs. What up, what up to Rogers, Arkansas. Hi, hey, hello to Hampton, New Hampshire. The concrete city where dreams are made of, New York City. Thanks for coming back. Richardson, Texas. Look at you. Not, not, not just you, but look at us. Who would have thought you'd be here? Not me. And finally, thanks to my neighbors over in Abington, Pennsylvania, for checking out the show. As always, we start by rating the thickness of my stack, so let's moonwalk smoothly so we can check out Mike's Thickometer. Oh yeah, Mike's Thickometer. Thick like a cup of your favorite Froyo, this week clocks in at an 8 out of 10 on Mike's Thickometer. Holy thickness, Batman, that's a lot of books! In case you're curious, the stack this week has a Marvel advantage, but damn son, it's a lot. This week, we begin with the Marvel books. Starting up first, Amazing Spider-Man number 50.lr. I gave this a 3 out of 5. So these .lr or Last Remains stories get interesting to me. They're a continuation of the Last Remains story, but aren't considered proper Amazing Spider-Man issues, which is an odd decision because despite being bigger expansions of the story, it's just weird. I don't know. Either way, this story fills in some gaps. The spidey part of the story deals with him fighting off a possessed Order of the Web, which largely takes place in an underwater pod. They are definitely possessed by Kindred, a.k.a. Harry Osborne, in case you missed that big mic drop last episode. The front glass gets broken, allowing Pete to get free, but Kindred seems sad on letting Pete's friends drown. However, Pete saves them, and in his weakened state... They renew their attack and overtake him, drugging him via Anya's spiders. Kindred says to find him alone when he's ready, before he passes out. The rest of the issue is largely a therapy-style conversation between Norman Osborn and Doctor Kafka, and this conversation plays over Spidey's struggles at times. Norman admits to a whole bunch of stuff, starting with the fact that he sold his soul to a demon and he's largely responsible for a ton of pain and suffering, and finally that his guilt over everything that he's done to ruin Harry. He says that he knows what Harry is going to do next, but it's too late. Kafka suggests in order to repair the relationship, that he and Harry find an intermediary that they both know. This is the prelude to the big reveal in this issue, that Mary Jane Watson returns. Despite the fact that new... Regular Amazing Spider-Man artist Patrick Gleason isn't on the book stylistically, it still looks great. And that's a huge credit to Frederico Vincentini. The designs are similar enough that I had to double check just to be sure that it wasn't the same artist. The story is good because it fills in the gap about how Pete got so messed up in a route to Doctor Strange's place. Good impactful but not great considering that we already know how this part of the story ends also i feel like this may result in a major character death at the end of the story arc it just feels too clustered with all these major characters and these things tend to end badly for someone in pete's orbit next up we have daredevil number 23 i gave this a four and a half out of five here's your marvel book of the week chip did it again this issue moves some pretty significant pieces around DD's D- chessboard. Bringing Kirsten McDuffie back into Matt's orbit is a nice move, especially since he remembers their relationship, but she doesn't, and he's pretty sour. Matt snaps on Foggy for bringing K- Kirsten in and jumps out a window and goes to Brood, where he comes across Electra. He's not in the mood and they take some verbal shots at each other where they bring up the billions of dollars that she's stolen, which she says that she's using to build an infrastructure to counter against a rebuilding hand organization. She also tips him off to a meeting later that night. Meanwhile, Kirsten mentions at a bar that Matt should be there to help defend Daredevil and asks where he is. Meanwhile, that meeting that Elektra mentions pops off in a vault between Wilson Fisk and the Underworld. Hammerhead oversteps, and Kingpin grabs him by the back of the head and repeatedly slams it against the table, leaving a bloody mess. Afterwards, he anoints Izzy Libris, the new Kingpin, and they are interrupted by the safe door being yanked off. Daredevil makes some thinly veiled threats, and they counter saying that he'll soon be in jail, and he reveals his backup, Spider-Man. I love how Chip can't resist an opportunity to write Spidey. Then Spidey and Daredevil have a heart-to-heart where Spidey has a bit of a breakdown about the person that he accidentally killed many years ago, and in a touching series of panels, Daredevil hugs Spidey, almost in forgiveness. They talk it out as best they can. The next morning, Daredevil goes for his meeting with Foggy and Kirsten and discovers Matt Murdock waiting for him. The art in this book is always top-notch. This creative team works really well together. Marco Ciccetto does an excellent job with spidey's look especially when he looks brooding and threatening the look of this book is picture perfect and no disrespect to chip here either this story is built and built and it feels like it's starting to reach a very pivotal point great read all right moving on to fantastic four number 25 i gave this a three and a half out of five while this book is very good there are a ton of moving pieces to keep track of for starters, the book opens four hours in the future. No, that amount of time is not lost on me. An alien attacks the Baxter building where it takes out the Fantastics. Sue gets a new mission for Nick Fury where she's supposed to infiltrate Latverian embassy. On Yancy Street, Valeria is working with Reed on a new teleporter design and Franklin is listening to mutant music as Johnny delivers new costumes. I'm sorry, New uniforms. The Grimms are preparing Joe and Nikki for school and decide to homeschool due to their seemingly murderous tendencies. As Sue is doing infiltration, which Doom is quite aware of, the alien breaks into the embassy and attempts to steal a stealth box, which Doom destroys. It then leaves, and Sue and Doom talk about what the alien was after, prompting Doom to tell Sue to talk to her husband about his stealth box. She calls him and he decides to assemble the Fantastic Four and rush off, except for Valeria, Joe, and Nikki. Reed warns the Fantastics to get out of the building, and then we get to the attack that started at the beginning of the issue. Reed is being really dodgy and won't tell anybody what's in Container Zero, as the stealth box is being called. The alien batters the thing away like he's nothing, and Franklin steps into the fight, eventually burning out his power. He runs away as Valeria, Joe, and Nikki on Yancey Street look to chip in to the struggle in their own special way. Franklin goes for Krakow and Gate and seeks help, but it seems that he's no longer a mutant, or at the very least can no longer use the gates. The alien gets to the box and picks it up, worrying Reed because it's supposed to be locked to a fixed point in space. The alien opens the box unleashing something called the Zero Force, Which isn't what the alien is looking for, and it just leaves. I assume it'll be back in the future. Meanwhile, reinforcements arrive in the form of Valeria, Joe, and Nikki. They deploy the telepod to contain the Zero Force. The Fantastic Four and Doom agree to keep track of the gate, which can provide a a doorway to every point in space and time. Reed and Sue take the first watch and resolve to keep no more secrets from each other. Ben and Alicia have a conversation about homeschooling and thinking about how well it's worked for Val and Franklin. Meanwhile, Val is solving more problems, and Franklin is seemingly really depressed about his mutant abilities being taken away. Then there's a short story follow-up from Empire with The Watcher and The Unseen. Long story short, Watcher reclaims his eye and duties to watch and sees everything that's happened in his absence. He installs Nick Fury as his herald to prepare for war. Big issue with tons of stuff going on. A new alien species with a quest all their own, a new force that is the door for more exploration, an empire tie-in, Val cementing her status, and Franklin losing his god-level powers. It's an enjoyable read overall and looks really good. I sometimes forget just how fun this book is. It's regularly been a throwback to a time where exploration sparked multiple levels of creativity and fun, which is a real compliment to the creative team on this book. Next up, we have Guardians of the Galaxy number 7. I gave this a a 3.5 out of 5. This issue seems like it's going to be a lame political issue, but has a hard turn during the book. Nova and Marvel Boy are set to show up as emissaries to a council meeting in the aftermath of the events of Empire. Phyla and Moondragon have a telepathic fight over Moondragon's choices in the last issue. The Guardians arrive at the Proscydium, and there are quite a few jokes at Marvel Boy's expense for dressing like Adam Ant. The meeting happens, and it's a tense series of exchanges over treaties, weapons, and more. In a break, Novar goes to the restroom, only to find Stoat bleeding out on the floor. Valor from the kree Scroll Alliance goes into the bathroom as Marvel Boy is trying to help and accuses Marvel Boy of treachery. And then pulls and fires his weapon, which flips around, firing in reverse, killing him. Novart now surrounded by two bodies he had nothing to do with, is discovered by Clerk, who takes him into custody immediately, but not before battering him around a little bit. They determine that they need an independent investigator, and in walks a drunk rocket raccoon, flanked by the rest of the guardians. I really like how this issue takes a turn from political drama to murder mystery. It seems as if. There's a little more that meets the eye. And honestly, if the Transformers show up, I really won't be mad. Let's get weird. I hope this gets sorted out in another issue or two. At times, the art really stands out, but more often than not, it's fine. I will say that the design of Nova rocking a little stubble is a nice touch, considering all that he's been through. Next up, we have Iron Man number two. I gave this a three and a half out of five. The unpacking of Tony's mental state is further tackled in this issue. It opens with Korvac and Zoda working to get Korvac back on his feet a year ago, and then quickly transitions to Iron Man fighting Absorbing Man in a wrestling ring. There's a joke in there about some man-on-man action, but I'll leave you to it. Tony then amesks Arcade as the referee, presumably costing people money, who wagered on it. Then Tony has a meditation session with P- uh, Patsy, which does not go well because Tony can't shut his mouth. But she gets to the bottom of the problem, which is that Tony keeps trying to prove that he's still a hero to himself. They're interrupted by a call to help stop Cardiac, who's trapped several Stark Enterprises employees, scientists really, in a giant impenetrable dome. Tony breaks it open, breaking 17 bones in the process, while Hellcat stops Cardiac. At the end of the issue, Tony's in the hospital receiving some tough love from Hellcat, when Unicorn escapes the mental health ward, claiming that he's a servant to the true God who is calling him in the electricity. I love the concept of this book, especially the fact that someone like Tony, who spent so much time being universally liked, is clearly struggling with some mental health struggles. I'm curious to see how far down he goes before he gets built back up. It's similar to Daredevil, but it's only two issues in, so I can't make that comparison quite yet the art standouts here are in splash pages iron man suit and facial work i love that that's where the focus is because that's really what you need to have in a book like this to make it work when there's pain in tony's eyes it seems real all right moving on to marvel's x number six i gave this a three out of five uh, here's the end of the series by Alex Ross. This picks up where the last issue ended with a bunch of mutated people storming the Baxter building. The heroes jump into the action with one goal in mind. Keep David alive. Things go well at first, but when they start to turn, Reed activates a defense that sucks the creatures into the negative zone. Before they can close it, a monster grabs David and starts to pull him in, but gets stopped by Icarus, an Eternal who sacrifices himself to save David. David decides to help Cap by bringing him his shield back, and it gets him fatally slashed across the back. This triggers the activation of the Hulk when Banner sees him bleeding out on the ground. Even the villains, led by Norman Osborn, come to attempt to bring some kind of order to the city. The heroes mourn David's death, particularly Daredevil and Spider-Man. As they try to craft an orderly society in the aftermath, Luke, Danny, and Kyle get settled in at the police station. But Kyle has a vision. He digs up David, who's alive and healed. Doesn't even need his glasses anymore. His power is that he can't die. We jump to the future where we see he becomes a Daredevil-Johnny Blaze hybrid, putting on shows for people to see the ways in which he can't die. This book definitely tricked me because I thought they legit killed off a kid. I like the dark, heavy lines and the trippy nature of some of the scenes in the book, particularly the the negative zone bits. I wish there had been more tonal shifts in the coloring, but the art did plenty on its own in this book. The story is fine overall, no serious complaints. I am happy, however, that it didn't drag on over like 12 to 18 issues. Alright, next up we have Spider-Woman number 5, I gave this a three and a half out of five. There are two stories in this book. One is much shorter than the other. The first deals with the fallout from the last issue, and it gets pretty grisly. Miriam and Jess get into the fighting both Octavia and each other. Jess basically has fully come around that her mom is a clone in this issue. They both get souped up from the serum that is developed and just go at it over and over again. Octavia captures Rebecca, which refocuses Jess and Miriam. Then... While Jess, Michael, and Rebecca flee, Miriam holds off Octavia and then blows up the building. Jess and Michael go their separate ways via Copter, vowing to find a cure at the end of the story. Second story is really more of a lead into what feels like will be the next big story arc. She tells her boyfriend and son that she won't be home until she gets fixed, and then gets Carol Danvers and tells her to hop on your motorcycle loser. We're going to space. The art in these stories is stunning. The first story takes a weird sci-fi take on clone degeneration and action battle scenes that will really haunt you for a long time. The second story is bright, vivid, and detailed. I enjoy the family drama, but at times, that's kind of a lot. I think the bigger story driving Jess is how she cures herself, or doesn't. I think there's a lot of nice threads dangling here, and hopefully the book is around long enough to see those through. Alright, finally here we get to our X of Swords crossover, starting with Excalibur 13, I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. This issue takes place on Otherworld, but has some pretty serious implications. It largely deals with the relationship between Saturnine, the Braddock family, and the new Captain Britain Corps. Saturnine is clearly working some kind of angle here that is shown just in small throwaway type lines that are shared with Betsy, among others. Betsy tries her hardest to get Brian to draw his sword, but he consistently refuses. Meanwhile, that night, the Captain Britain Corps goes to assassinate King Jamie. The Corps now consists of Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, and another mutant that I can only imagine is Richter. Jamie screams, alerting Brian and Betsy who go to his chamber. And then Jamie is using his powers to hold them all and decides to kill one, and that happens to be Jubilee. They attempt to flee and Brian's scabbard gets lit on fire, causing him to unintentionally unsheathe the sword and become Captain Avalon. Saturnine steps in, sending the Captain Britain Corps to the dungeons and to die at dawn. And as she tries to strip Betsy of her amulet, Betsy shatters it. Brian goes to Saturnine's bedroom with her as the others go to the dungeon. Betsy escapes with Jamie's help, and they go rescue Brian and end up with the Starlight Sword as well. Betsy and Brian go back to Krokoa and each take a sigil. I really like the art in the story because of the awesome level of detail. It's not overwhelming, but Arby Silva finds a really good balance between the words and visual presentation of the story. The story for me got better on a second read-through. It was kind of confusing the first time around, but afterwards it ends up being a really good story that puts a family at the heart of the narrative. Good issue. Finally, here we have X-Men number 13, Uh, I gave this a a 3.5 out of 5. This one is an Apocalypse-centered story in his pursuit of his sword. It starts with him being healed from his battle with his children. In his pain from the healing, it triggers a flashback to Akara and the struggles held there long ago. Apocalypse is in love with Genesis, but she has to go seal a breach and says he cannot because he is not strong enough. She also gives him the edict that the fittest should remain. He wakes up on the healer's table and then goes for his sword. He goes to an Egyptian pyramid, smashes open four sarcophagi, all themed as his horsemen, and assembles his sword scarab. It's an interesting read, namely because we don't often get to see the softer, more emotional side of Apocalypse, and understand that these are things that drive him. I like the quiet determination of Apocalypse, and I can't help but feel this tournament is going to be incredibly impactful for him. Alright, we're going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to jump into these DC books. Hey guys, this is Jesse at The Twisted Cape. We just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you amazing listeners of both The Twistcast and Mike StickStack Stack for your support over all these years. Just a friendly reminder to subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting platform because we're everywhere. Also, don't forget to like and rate The Twistcast wherever you listen. We do love our five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Don't forget to tell us what you like about the show in your review as well. And now, back to the show. And we're back. We're going to jump into these DC books, starting with Batman number 101. I gave this a a 2.5 out of 5. This book served as our first look at Gotham post Joker War. The book opens with Batman talking to Catwoman and admitting that Joker was right about how Batman was operating. Then we get a flashback of Batman visiting Lucius Fox, but not before a fight with his bodyguard Grifter. Lucius has been given a lot of Bruce's money, which is a lot of money, like a lot of money. Bruce tells Lucius to keep the money, but it means he'll have to be a leaner Batman. He can't just pay for things out of his own pocket anymore without drawing suspicion. Then we get back to Batman and Catwoman, where Bruce reveals that he's moving into the city to a building he didn't even know that he owned. He mentions that he can't live in the mansion anymore without Alfred and says he needs to develop a new way to be Batman and Selina suggests that they run away, which he declines, as she knew he would. They agree to give each other a year to get their respective shit together, so they can work on their relationship together. I feel like much of this was not accurately portrayed as being important during Joker War. Bruce's money always seemed to be a backburner-style story, instead of the major development that it seems to be in this story. Unfortunately, I feel like I'm getting the exact same concept over in Iron Man right now, so I'm not sure how much I like this in contrast. The art in this book, however, is great. I would not mind Gilliam March sticking around to keep working on this grizzled Batman. His take on Grifter is awesome, too. Hopefully, the story catches up to the art here. Next up, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, Robin King, number one. I gave this a one and a half out of five. I mean this book is in fact a book overall this is the story about the robin king and how he became who he is and why the batman who laughs is so interested in him the robin king is a bruce who never becomes batman but instead embraces the robin over the bat and at a much earlier age he prepares just as much as his adult counterpart but has the exuberance of youth on his side In present time, he stands over the Trinity, and then is called to fight Red Tornado, Animal Man, and Blue Beetle. It seems as though he kills all three. He turns his attention to the Trinity, hurts them badly, but they're taken away by the Batman Who Laughs, or the Darkest Night, depending on where you are in the timeline, and takes Robin King to a world of Robins, and he truly is their king. Then there's a mini-story about Signal Red Robin, spoiler an orphan taking on a Batman seemingly powered by the Lazarus Pit, and is a merging of Batman, Rachel, Ghoul, and Duke. The heroes win, but it's really Duke's story about them becoming the next generation of Gar- Gotham's guardians. Overall, this book was not a great tie-in. It was more frustrating than anything. No offense, but I'm not a huge fan of Riley Rossmo's art. The style just really isn't great for me because it's a little more weird and out there than I'd personally prefer. This book felt more laborious than fun to read. I'd skip this one if I were you. Next up, we have Justice League number 55. I gave this a 4 out of 5. Code dc book of the week. It picks up right where last issue left off, in the Valley of Starro. It turns out the team has been breathing in many Starro's, and it's causing them all to hallucinate. Lex wires Cyborg to let off an explosion to burn away the influence of the many Starro's. The rest of the team is not happy about the appearance of Lex, but becomes more concerned with the earthquake and disappearance of Detective Chimp. The earthquake revelation is that the entire valley is one giant Starro. Also, Detective Chimp doesn't want to leave his hallucination, but they make him. He's not happy about this because his one remaining friend is gone, and he's really hurting over that. He says they're not the Justice League, but the Suicide Squad, which Corey ends up really embracing. Kendra psychically senses Martian Manhunter, and after hitting Lex in the face, flies off after him. The team follows and reaches the shores and tries to enact a plan, but are headed off by the Omega Knight. Martian Manhunter reveals himself to be the Mindhunter, and then the team is blasted. I love how this book was paced. Big action piece, real dramatic weight in slower moments, and a big dramatic cliffhanger at the end. I love the art and the designs here as well. It just looks simply amazing. I'm really looking forward to this book regularly. Josh Williamson has had a really good grasp on writing a team, and he'd be on my short list to keep this book going in the future. Next up, we have Nightwing, number 75. I gave this a 4 out of 5. Another co-DC book of the week. Like Batman this week, Nightwing puts a cap on Joker War. This book deals with a lot of plot points over the last 20 issues or so as well. First, Dick is visited by some old Titans teammates, Donna and Garth. This book really focuses on everyone trying to get Dick to go back to being Nightwing full time instead of the mashup, cabbie type uniform that he's been using. These two try to help, but Dick declines. Babs does the same, leading to Dick declining again, citing the fact that he's not ready. Meanwhile, we get some interludes, KG Beast starting in a Russian bar, being mocked for losing his arm to a bunch of kids, Teen Titans, hello, and missing a kill shot on Nightwing, although it was a planned miss. He kills these mocking people and then makes for America where he kills an elderly pair driving a car and takes their car. Meanwhile, Batman and Nightwing start to chase down some of Joker's clown remnants when Dick realizes that Batman is setting him up, taking him to the place where he was forced to fight Babs, and his Nightwing costume is hanging high above. When Bruce mentions that neither of them is really okay because they no longer have Alfred, it triggers a flashback of Dick at Alfred's grave and and Alfred's ghost looking on talking to Dick using inspiring words, which Dick clearly does not hear. When the flashback ends, Dick decides to retake the mantle of Nightwing. He goes back to Bloodhaven, effectively breaking up the team of Nightwings. He goes to B's bar and starts to make up with her after she disappeared from Gotham. Their reunion is cut short by bullet fire and KGB starting an attack on Nightwing, and the night- the issue ends with B as a hostage, threatened to be killed before KGB takes Nightwing out. I loved so much of this book. It really leaned on Dick's past, bringing in friends, lovers, and colleagues from multiple periods of his life. It tied up many loose ends is really prepping Nightwing for some different stories in the future. This book looks amazing. It's difficult to do, but the duo of Travis Moore and Ron and Cliquette should stay on this book as long as they can together. It's brilliant all the way through. Finally, we have Teen Titans number 46. I gave this a a 2.5 out of 5, almost at the end of this series and it still adds new things for the next issue. The issue begins with the Titans going after Mammoth and Shimmer with Superboy as they hunt down Robin. They win and get into a vault where Damian has left a note for John, which John reads and then incinerates. He flies away with the defeated villains, leaving the Titans to figure it out. They decide to continue being a team, but go their separate ways for some downtime. Crush is staying at Roundhouse's house, where they have a real heart-to-heart about being friends. Wallace and Amico go on a date-slash-non-date, and as Kid Flash is about to actually ask her out, she begins to fire arrows at him, slowing him down for Joystick to take over his mind as well. The issue ends with Joystick in control of two of the Titans. Good issue, but I'm not sure if it's a really good idea to ramp up a story like this when the end of the series is so close. The art is okay, but there are just some really weird moments in the book. I'll probably add these to a live uh, show with a series of panels coming up fairly soon. As we start to wrap up, if you want to be on the show, hit me up on Twitter at Mike 29 Looking ahead to next week, on the DC end of things, we have a couple of cool books to look forward to. We'll be checking out Batgirl number 50, Batman 3 Jokers number 3, and Justice League Dark number 27. On the Marvel side, we have a look at Amazing Spider-Man number 51, Immortal Hulk number 39, and X of Swords Stasis number one. We got some stuff on YouTube, so please make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss a drop of our content. We have some new March on T Public, so check out the link in the show notes to get your hands on that sweet, sweet gear. That is all the time we have for this week. Of course make sure you subscribe to The Twisted Cape on your favorite podcast platform or just listen on thetwistedcape.com. We're at The Twisted Cape, no spaces, on every social media platform. Facebook, the Gram, Twitter, and YouTube. Make sure you tune in weekly on Wednesday to our live show on Facebook and on YouTube and live in them comments. We go over them during and at the end of each show. Finally, feel free to shoot us some feedback on this show to thetwistedcape at gmail.com. And make sure you use the subject line, MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So until next time, we do the hokey pokey and we turn ourselves around. That's what it's all about. Stay safe, wear a mask, stay twisted. It's that.